This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open to Haggai, the book of Haggai chapter 1. Now, uh, if you don't know where that is, go to Matthew, which is the New Testament, and take a left. And uh, you will go, you will pass three books, Malachi, Zechariah, and then you'll get to Haggai. These three guys were the last prophets uh, of the Old Testament. And uh, so we're going to look at Haggai. Now, we are on a series, we're in a series called Revive. It is about renewal and revival in our lives and in our church. And uh, we are going to stay on it a little bit longer. Um, I'm already working on the next series. I'm planning ahead a little bit. And so the the next series we're going to do is we're going to teach through the book of Philippians. So that's where we're going next. Book of Joy. It's an exciting book. But I have not felt, and we don't do series like this. We just teach a book. We pray about that one, teach that one, then we pray and talk, and then we pick another one and teach that. But I don't feel... um, I don't feel free to move on from this topic yet, if I could say it that way. So I just feel like I'm still praying and still uh, with you praying and trusting the Lord has some, some more for us. So I'm going to spend three weeks in Haggai. We're not going to cover the whole book, but the next three weeks we're going to be in this book. And I believe Haggai has been reading my mail and reading our mail. That's kind of an antiquated expression. He's been reading our texts uh, and he knows what is going on in our lives. And uh, so I think this is going to be something that he has to, uh, the Bible has to speak to us about. We've talked about a lot of things in revival, that God is a renewing, reviving God. We talked about the scripture. We've talked about repentance at length. We've talked about prayer. And today, what I want to talk about really for the next three weeks is what happens to a church when revival comes. You see, when God renews and revives a people, he wakes up sleepy Christians. The alarm goes off, and the people of God who have been a bit unconscious to who he is and to what his purposes are, they wake up. And one of the things that happens, all kinds of things happen. We mentioned repentance. We mentioned an awareness of the presence of God. One, one definition of revival is a people saturated with God's presence. So we're aware of his presence in a way that we weren't before. We're aware of his word. Our hearts are softened and tender and responses, responsive. Our consciences are alert. We're aware of both the holiness of God in a profound way and also the love of God. The love of God is near us. We feel at the same time that he is exceedingly holy and perfect, and we feel embraced in his arms of love at the same time. That's renewal and revival when it happens to an individual. When it happens to a church, here's what happens. Revival brings a recovery of priorities, and that's what Haggai's about. It brings a recovery of priorities. When a person is renewed and revived, and when we see God like we have not been seeing him, and when his word is alive to us, and when his presence is palpable, and when his voice is clear, our priorities will change. And when I've had renewing times of, with God in my life, here's what it's always happened. I've said, what have I been thinking? What have I been doing? Things that, are, that were so important to me all of a sudden look trivial and secondary, and things that I wasn't pursuing, all of a sudden, I can't get my mind off of them, the things of God and the people of God and those who need Christ. And so when renewing and reviving comes, there is a renewing of our priorities. 
and a recovering of biblical priorities. And that's exactly what the book of Haggai is about. It is about people coming back to God and his priorities. So let's read verses 1 through 11. And sometimes we read a passage of scripture. I say, put your seatbelt on. Today would be good to put a seatbelt and probably a shoulder harness and a helmet as well. So uh, here we go. The word of the Lord from Haggai to us today. Verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes." Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that the sharp edge of the prophetic word of God would cut our hearts this morning, and we pray that the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit would comfort us in repentance this morning, and we pray that we would be rooted in the gospel, secure in our declared righteousness, and motivated to be conformed to the image of Christ by your sanctifying grace today. So Lord, have your way in us, we pray. We open ourselves and we ask you to speak your word, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a little bit of history is really important, or what we just read won't make sense. A little bit of history will, will tell us a lot about what we just read. Um, here's the background. This book is dated very specifically. We know exactly, unlike most books, we know exactly when Haggai spoke. We don't know much about him. Uh, his name means festival. We don't really know much about him. Uh, I guess he was a party. He was a festival. It uh, doesn't sound like a, quite a party, but it's going to be a party if, if they respond to him. But here's what he says. It says, verse 1, in the second day of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. So historians know when Darius was a the king. They know what the, uh, what, what, what the sixth month, uh, what the second year of his reign was, the sixth month, um, the first day of the month. So this was written on August 29th, 520 B.C., August 29, 520 B.C. I don't do a lot of dates. This is super important. 520 B.C. Say this with me. 520 B.C. Just lodge that date in your mind because I'm going to give you two other dates. 520 B.C., Haggai 
gives a prophetic word from God to the people. Here's what happened before that. Israel had been very sinful, had been worshiping idols, we talked about it, had been going to the Baals and committing sexual immorality as an act of worship, heinous, heinous acts the people of God had committed. So God gave them prophets, he gave them warnings, he gave them chance after chance after chance, and in his mercy he disciplined them. He sent in Babylon, they tore down Israel, they destroyed the temple, and they carted off all of God's people to Babylon in exile. That was 586 BC. Now you remember the date, 520 BC. So 586 BC, they all go into exile in Babylon. Well, they start crying out to God, God has mercy on them. In 538, they've almost been in exile 50 years, he raises up a guy named Cyrus. He brings the Persian empire to take over Babylon, new ruler. And so now there's a new ruler in Babylon, Cyrus, who's ruling over the captive people of God, Israel. And Cyrus does this. He decrees that the people of Israel should go home. And this pagan king decrees under the sovereignty of God that this people should go home and build the temple of God. That's what he tells them. Go build the temple of God, 538 BC. So they go, they go back, everybody's super excited. God has freed them. This is grace. Listen, gospel grace, God's act. God frees a sinful, captive people and brings them to his land to worship him. It's like, in some ways, like the Exodus. God delivers captive people so that they can be his own. Grace, mercy, freedom. They're freed to serve God. The pagan king says, go build the temple. God says, go build the temple. 538, they show up, they do a little work around the temple, and then here's what happens. The neighbors who oppose them start giving them a hard time. And they look around and they go, wow, we're here to resettle this desolate land. We better build some houses. You know what? We, we better plant some gardens and grow, not gardens, crops. We better plant some crops and grow some food. You know what, we got little ones. We need to get them settled in the new land. And, and so they stopped the building of the temple, 538 B.C. And they don't go back to it. And they don't go back to it. They don't go back to it. And God is silent. God is patient. God is merciful. And in 520 B.C., he breaks his silence. 18 years, and they've done nothing. God has freed them to build his house, and they haven't done it. So he raises up this guy named Haggai, and Haggai brings the word of the Lord to the people who have now been here, freed by the good news, freed by the hand of God to build his temple. And then this is what God says to him. His first words after so long of a time, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people. He doesn't call them my people. He's not rejecting them, but what he's saying is they're not acting like my people. I freed them to build my house, but they're acting like these people. They're acting like like God doesn't exist. And you know what has happened here? They have forgotten their purpose. That's point one. I got four little statements for you today. Number one, they have forgotten their purpose. Forgotten purpose. Why has God brought them out of exile? Why are they in Jerusalem? What has he called them to do? Build the temple. Why? Look at verse 8. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
Why did he bring them out of exile? So that they could glorify him. So that they could bring honor to him. So that they could make him famous or declare his fame would be a better way to say it. To the, to the nations. So that they could be a light to the Gentiles. So that he could be honored by his people worshiping him. That's why he delivered them after their discipline. That's why he graciously brought them back. Build the house so that he could, what? Take pleasure in it. That's the purpose. And by the way, that's your purpose. I love the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you're likely familiar with. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is just one expression of how they were to glorify God, to be brought back into the land and to build his house. And yet they have lost sight of their purpose in life. And when we lose sight of our purpose, we will always get off course. If we do not get the first button buttoned, the shirt will not be buttoned properly. We will always miss it. And the first button is always the glory of God. You're created to glorify God. You're breathing his air to glorify him. Jesus gave his life to redeem you and free you and make you a new person to glorify God. You're here today to glorify God. That is always the purpose. And when we forget the purpose, we drift. If you forget the destination of the trip, you will get caught up on side roads going other ways. If you forget the goal, you will get sidetracked. And that's what's happened. They've gotten sidetracked. They've lost sight of the goal for 18 years. They haven't gotten around to the purpose of God. Now, before we go any, I just probably need to make this clear because you could be drawing conclusions that I will never make in this sermon. I am not preaching about building a building on Frisco Square today. Let me make that very clear. They're building the temple. I'm going a totally different direction. This is not about, it's been five years, why aren't we in first? Ban that. If you've thought about a physical building at all, ban that from your thinking from here on out. They are called to build his house. What does that mean? That's their task to glorify him in their generation. Well, the house of God was the central place of worship for the people of God. So they needed the temple to offer their sacrifices, to gather, the priests served there. Um, This was a place where they worshiped God, sang the Psalms, heard his word, uh, held their festivals, all this sort of thing. So this was central to their worship. In the New Testament, a building is not central to the worship of God's people. In the New Testament, Jesus says he's the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They said, how can you do that? And he said, he meant his body. And in the New Testament, after Jesus, the church is also called the temple. He's the head, we're the body. Peter says this, that God's temple is made up of living stones. You're sitting next to living stones. Living stones are people redeemed by Christ, built together in a family, as a church, as the expression of God's people. So he inhabits a a spiritual building of people. He inhabits a people, not a structure. So when we talk about building the house in the New Testament, it wouldn't be that it's irrelevant that we're building a new facility. That's not irrelevant to the purposes of God, but that's not central. What's central is your neighbor right next to you. What's central is us, the people of God or the church, the people of God or the house of God. Welcome to the house of God. Uh, That's the people of God. So when he's saying build the house for us, that's be about God's purpose of building 
his people. We build his house when we edify and build up his people. We build his house when we serve his people. We build his house when we volunteer to help his people. We build his house when we invest our finances to build his people. We build his house when we give our time to his mission, which is to build his people for his glory and to reach out as a testimony, both corporately and individually, to those who don't know Christ. That is his purpose. And so we build his people and we honor and glorify him and he takes pleasure in that house. I'm sure God likes this building, but his pleasure today is not in the structure of 10633 John W. Elliott Drive. His glory is in his people worshiping him and loving one another. That's what he takes pleasure in. And so we give ourselves to his purpose and they have forgotten their purpose. And they have drifted. For Israel, it was reasonable to pause. I mean, it's reasonable, right? It's reasonable to pause on the temple. God freed us here, but we got to have a place to live. So I think it's reasonable to say, look, for a season, we're going to build our houses and then we'll build his. You know, for a season, uh, we'll get some crops going so we don't starve. Who needs a temple if all the people starve to death? So Okay, let, let's do that. It's okay for a, maybe for a season God would have wanted that. I don't know. He doesn't say. But here's what happens. Here's the danger. What begins as a shift in priorities for a season can easily become a lifestyle. So now our houses are done. Now we've planted our crops and had 18 harvests, by the way, and nobody's building the house of God. They're asleep. They need to be renewed. They need to be revived to God and his purpose for their life. They have forgotten their purpose. And and people who have forgotten their purpose, God says, you're acting like these people and not my people. It's a strong word of rebuke. These people, that's a rebuke. That God is rebuking them. Why? Because he loves them. Is God harsh? No, God is holy. And he is correcting them out of love because he's got great purposes for them. And we'll see that as we go on. So they have forgotten their purpose. And that is easy for us as we build God's house, isn't it? Well, I'm really busy in college. When I, you know, when I get out of college, then I will surely settle down into a spiritual family. Hey, you've forgotten your purpose, student. You've forgotten your purpose. And you will deceive yourself into thinking it'll come later. And it may but you might wait eight, waste 18 years. That's the reality. Well, when the kids get a little older, I'll find a place to serve. Maybe. Maybe not. That's not to put pressure on someone who's got a newborn, like you deliver on Friday and you need to be teaching Sunday school on Sunday. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a season where somebody says, hey, later I can get to building the house of God. When I get a raise, I'll start giving. Most of us said that three raises ago. Then I'll start. When the project is over, then I'll plug in to a small group. When the soccer season is over, then we'll be able to attend Sundays regularly. 
When I grow and know more biblical answers, then I'll pray for my neighbor and reach out to him. Listen, there's always a reason to wait. I mean, this is what they said. He, he, he asked them, thus says the Lord, these people say the time has not yet come to build, rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, we look at it and it's comical a little bit. We go, 18 years, my goodness. How are they still saying that? The grammar, the grammar of, of, the, of the sentence, uh, the, it means literally that they have said in the past and continue to say. It's a continuous statement. So these people have said and continue to say, it's not yet time. We, there's always an opportunity to say, it's not yet time. And when we forget our purpose, we will say, it's not yet time. When we remember our purpose, we will say, I've got today, God. That's all I've got. I've got today. And so, Lord, I, I want to live as an offering. I want to make myself an offering to you today. I don't know what you've got for me. I don't know what I can do, but today I want to invest it for your glory. I may not have tomorrow and I may not want to invest it for your glory tomorrow because I can drift like they did. And I don't want to wake up call in 18 years. Lord, I want you speaking to me today, empowering me, filling me with your spirit, giving me your heart clarifying my purposes before you. How can I glorify you? This is the prayer. How can I glorify you today, God? I mean, certainly in your work, uh, in your marriage, um, in your neighborhood. There's all kinds of ways we can glorify. But what does that look like for me today? That's the prayer. So they've forgotten their purpose. When you forget your purpose, you pursue the wrong priorities. If your purpose daily is not to glorify God, then you and I will find other priorities. That's what they've done. They've forgotten their purpose. What was their purpose? Build the house of God. That's why he freed them and brought them back here 18 years ago. That's why he did that. They've forgotten their purpose. And so this second word, he brings a second word of the Lord for them to them. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now this isn't to the leaders. The first one was to Zerubbabel. He's their governor. Judah's their priest. So the civil and religious authorities are working together. And uh, the second one is to the people. And he says, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 4, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? That's not me. That's God. That's what God said. And that's a rhetorical question. I don't think anybody raised their hands on that one to the prophet. So I know the answer. Well, actually, no, it's a rhetorical question that stings with conviction for some of the folks in Israel at that day, maybe most of them. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? What is he saying to them? He's saying, it's really not a time issue. You're saying, it's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And here's what God says, it's not really a time issue. It's a priority issue because it seems to be time for you to dwell in your paneled houses. Later, he will say to be busied about your house. It's definitely, you definitely have the time to do what you want to do is what he's saying. It's, you definitely have that time. So it's, is it really time to do that instead of build the house of the Lord, which is what he saved them and rescued them for it's, it's not a time issue, it's a priority issue. Listen, there's so many things in my life I want to say are a time issue. And I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. But there's so many things I want to say, yeah, I, I would do that if I just had time. But here's the reality of my life. When I look around my life, here's what I conclude. I do what's important to me, ultimately. Now, maybe not every given hour, but ultimately, if you look at a week, a month, a year of my life, you would say, whatever you do, that's important to you. I spend my money on what's important to me. That's just reality. I, I, I build relationships in a way that is important 
to me. That's just the truth. I invest my service, I invest my energy in whatever is important to me. I tend to my priorities. And I attend my priorities. I want to be able to think that my priorities are my intentions. I believe the truth is that my life is my priority. My priorities are how I live. Let me rephrase that. I want to say my priorities are my intentions. I believe reality is my priorities are my lifestyle. That's what I've made my priorities. Not my verbal confessional priorities, but my actual priorities. And so he's, that's what he's saying to them. You know, it's not time to build. What, what time is it? Is it time for you to be dwelling in your paneled houses? He's saying we've got, an, we've got an issue here. You have forgotten your purpose. And because of that, you have started pursuing some other priorities. And he just sort of points out, you have these paneled houses. So somebody's got time to do something. They didn't appear you know, magically. What is a paneled house? What does he mean? Well, there's debate on what this word means. And it essentially, we're going to land at the same place, but here, here's the debate. Some people say it means paneled. The ESV interpreters think it means paneled. And if that is the case, what he's talking about is some kind of interior uh, decor in their house. And so what he's doing is he's pointing out the hypocrisy by saying this. If it's not time to build the house of the Lord, how is it that you have enough wood and enough supplies and enough money and enough time to have decorated walls? How did you have time to cut that wood and panel the inside? You know what paneling is. Panel the inside of your house. So it could, how did you have time to do that? Or it could mean covered or roofed in. In that case, it means completed. So then that ca- if it means that, which ESV doesn't think so, but if some do, if it means that, then it is, how is it that you're in your completed houses? So the hypocrisy is, how do you have a roof over your head and you're, you're done with your house and no one's doing anything on mine? So it could mean that. Either way, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the people of Israel who have stopped at the foundation, have done nothing. They've stopped at the foundation of God's house. They've allowed it to remain a ruin, and yet they've completed their personal projects. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if I can be so blunt, no more blunt than God is here. If I can be as blunt as God is here, I think. What he's saying is, you have been apathetic towards God's priorities. You have been dedicated to your priorities. That's what he's saying. Here's another way of saying it. What he is saying to the people is, zeal for your own house has consumed you. That should be the tagline to the Home Depot ad. Zeal for your own house has consumed you. (laughs) That's what he says to them. You have given yourself to your purposes and priorities, and God's house lays barren out there. Now, he's not saying that completing your home is sinful. Like, we're really godly. We don't have a roof. No, you're really foolish. You're wet and foolish is what you are. It's not godly to have an in, an, a house that's not complete. He's not saying that you should have no decor. He's not saying that you should walk in the house. It should be, you know, we got to have framing and sheetrock, but we're not into selfishness. We didn't paint the walls. We didn't put carpet in. We don't hang a picture. That is so worldly. We love Jesus. He's not talking about some kind of stark legalism. He's not saying that if you decorate your house or make it warm in some way, that that is sinful. 
What, what he's talking about is that you are giving yourself to priorities. You're investing time, energy, work, resources, scheduling, planning, creativity, money. You are in, you're investing all that in your own little world, in your own little house, and you're not investing that beyond your own little world in his greater purpose through his temple. That's what he's saying. They have the wrong priorities. They've forgotten their purpose. They have the wrong priorities. And then, so what God is saying is, wake up. That's the beauty of the gracious call to renewal, is that it is a waking up. I'm guessing some people woke up a little bit when when Haggai brought this word. Some people probably got mad. I'm surprised he wasn't stoned. Some of the prophets were. The, the, the revival is about waking up to who God is and what he's doing and to listening to him. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's going to say that again. Consider your ways. Verse 6, you've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes in it. Here's what he's saying. There is no satisfaction in your life. You are busying yourselves. You are consumed with your purposes, and you're not happy. You're not fulfilled. There's nothing lasting to what you are building. When you build the kingdom of me, it does not stick. It does not fulfill. It does not last. There's always a desire for more, more, more. Because you weren't created for the kingdom of me, but the kingdom of God. That's the difference. And so here's what he says. He's saying that, you know, first of all, you've sown much. Man, you guys have worked hard. When he says you've sown much, that's their job. They're farmers, most of them. You've given a ton of time to your job. You've worked overtime. You've taken this project and that project, and and, and I'll get a break sometime. You work six days a week, seven days a week. Work, 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 work. And what do you have to show for it? That's what he's saying. You've sown much, but you've harvested very little. You eat, but you never have enough. There's always this insatiable desire for more. You drink, but never have you fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. You get a new wardrobe, but man, it it gets pretty old rather quick. You're wanting more. It's not meeting your needs. He's not saying you're naked. He's not saying you're poor and naked. You clothe yourself, but it's not meeting your needs. And then in the most telling statement of all of them, I think, he says, you earn wages and put them in a bag with holes. Welcome to America. Welcome to us. You make a decent living. On a historical standard and world standard, we make decent livings, folks. Compared to our neighbor, maybe not. But compared to the world today, yeah, we're we're doing all right. And so he's saying, you make a decent living... And you put it in this bag, and then you look up and say, where did it all go? What he's saying is you have adopted your priorities instead of mine, and what you earn is like a sieve. You haven't invested. There's a foundation with no building on it. No one has, has paid a dime. No one's given their time to do what God's called them to do, what he's freed them to do. And so what he's saying is you're trying to store up, you're trying to make money for yourself, and you're going, where did it all go? That is the story. That is the story of, of, of our lives when we don't prioritize God. When he's not first in our finances, it's where did it all go? Make more, spend more. 
The habit, in debt, get into more debt. It, it's a habit of consumption that takes all that I earn and spends it on my world. And then, because it's a hard issue, I want to consume more as I make more. And at the end of the day, I say, man, it's like this bag had holes in it. Whereas, if they had been, and once they do, start invest. We're going to see this because it's a great story. It doesn't end great today, but it will end. You'll have to come back next two weeks. But he, he, he's saying, if you had invested in my purposes, it'd be way different. It would be way different if you gave yourself to what you're created for. He's been patient. He's waited. But the reason that they're containing nothing, the reason that they find no satisfaction is because God. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Whoa. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what ground brings forth, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Man, isn't God good? That is a reflection of the love of God. That's a reflection of the love of God. If God didn't love them, here's what he would allow them to happen. They'd make more and store more and find satisfaction in their stuff and blow him off and never encounter their God. That would be hatred towards his people. But he loves his people. So they're pursuing other priorities and they're trying to amass a life of fulfillment and satisfaction, and he blows it away. Why? So that they'll go, this ain't working. We forgot God. We need God. And this is so merciful, because what he wants them to do is trade in a paneled house for God Almighty. Which would you rather have? You're paneling or encountering God? Which would you rather have? Building the teeny tiny the teeny tiny little world of me and all of my stuff, or give your life to something that's eternal, God's purpose on the planet. What's more loving than giving them himself and real purpose for life? This is an act of mercy. This isn't a man. Well, God does that. He blows their stuff away. Wow, what kind of God is that? That's a loving God who wants his people to experience him. He wants to knock the idol out of their hand so that they experience life. He wants to cut the chains of enslavement to money and stuff and things so that they get God. That's mercy. That is love from God. Now, let me just make one statement that I think will be helpful. There's not a universal conclusion here to be drawn. This this is not to be universally applied and say, wow, I'm having financial trouble. God must be resisting me. No, that's not necessarily the case at all. There's people who are having financial trouble because of their faith. There are people who will be martyred and killed today, starved, have all of their, or have all of their belongings taken from them because they're standing for Christ. God's not blowing that away. They're obeying Christ, and it's costing them. So having a lack doesn't always mean that it's the resistance of God. It could mean that we're standing for God in some places in the world today. But it can mean that if God's purposes are not our purposes, that God is trying to get our attention so that we get him and his purposes to replace us in our idolatries. I love this language here. Um, 
where he says in verse 9, you look for much, um, yeah, the second part of verse 9, why did I blow it away? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Busy, busy, busy. That's what he says. They're busy. We've got this false notion that no one's ever been more distracted than us. And that's partially true. Given the internet, mobile devices, uh, all the media choices, uh, all, all, in some ways that's true. But ultimately, it's not an out there problem. My busyness is not out there. My busyness is right here. This is my busy problem. I look at him every morning in the mirror. I make choices for what I do with my time. The internet doesn't come and grab me and say, you must waste time. I'm overpowered. Like it overpowers me. I waste time. Problem's right here. And that's what he's saying. You've busied yourself. You are buying more, working more, earning more, doing more, going more, caught up in the busyness of your house. And I blew your stuff away because I love you. It's the grace of God. He's, he's helping them not to waste their lives. James Boyce, on these verses, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord. He's a Presbyterian pastor, but he wrote this on this passage. He says, is this not a picture of our age? More cars, more houses, more furniture, more food, more television sets, more games, more vacations, and yet people are wretchedly unsatisfied. People have everything, but they are miserable. What is the cause of this? It is the work of God. God has sent emptiness so that his people might awaken from the idolatry and turn back to him. God has sent emptiness so that his people may repent of their idolatry and turn back to him. That's why sometimes, not always, but sometimes there is dissatisfaction in what we do because we have forgotten our purpose, we have pursued wrong priorities, and now God is calling us to wake up through his word and through our circumstances sometimes, but always through his word. More money, more status, more activity will never fill an empty heart. It will only distract us from the reality that we are empty. That's all it will do. And that can happen for 18 years before a wake-up call comes. May God renew us and revive us. The wake-up call comes like right now, not in 18 years. Here's the last thing. They pursue God's purpose. God's purposes are lived out in very tangible ways. Remember, he said he wanted to be glorified. Remember, I quoted the Westminster Shorter Catechism that our, 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 the chief end of man, our purpose in life is to glorify God. That can sound really sort of lofty and noble. Look what glorifying God looks like. It is boots on the ground. It is very earthy. Look at verses 7 and 8. He wants to be glorified. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills. Bring wood. That's not very lofty. Build the house. That's not very ethereal. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So he just calls them to something really tangible. Okay, you want to glorify me? Walk up the hill. Step out of your paneled house, put your calendar down, put your to-do list down, and make me number one, and get your family, and you guys walk up that hill for like a prayer meeting or meditation. No, I want you to cut some wood down. 
you to cut some wood. Then I want you to bring the wood back down the hill. And then hopefully knows somebody there knows something about building. So you're a grunt or an architect or a carpenter or whatever. But just do your part and get the house built. Super, super practical. This is, this is, this is repentance. You're going this way in your world. I want you to turn this way. And do what? Fast for the next 60 days? Maybe God is calling us to fast. But he's calling us to do something. Go this way and get wood. Cut wood. Nail wood. For the glory of God. Together and encounter me. You turn from yourself and you will run into the arms of mercy. You will experience the power of God. You will experience purpose in your life. You will be chasing the right thing because you're chasing him And he's got a hold of you, pulling you to himself. That's ultimately what's happening. So he's blunt. Would you say it's blunt? What does it take? Like walk up the hill and cut some wood. So in the spirit of Haggai, could I be very, very blunt? Don't plan another home project that occupies you on Sunday mornings. And you're not here to hear that if that's the case. Don't do it. Don't do it. You don't need it. If the new deck means that you cannot be a part of building God's house, you don't need a new deck. Or you need to hire somebody else to do it. That, that I'm being as blunt as he is doing. Don't join a sports league that gets your kids out on Sunday morning so the family can't worship God. Don't do it. Well, it's like really important. And after the season, today... Today, how can I build the house of God? What is God calling me to do? And dare I not be presumptuous enough to say it's just a season because seasons turns into lifestyles. We're being blunt. Don't work 60 hours. Now, as a full-time parent, it's more than that. But in, your mar- in the marketplace, don't work 60 hours. Well, the job requires I work 70 hours. Find a new job. I don't think God was very impressed that they were building their houses. God, we're busy. We're building our house. I don't think he said, oh, wow, and I like that. That is the right kind of paneling. Powerful, wonderful. I love it. I'll just stay over in the corner a few more decades uh, while you get on with your kingdom. It's wonderful. God's not saying that. He's saying, get out of your house and go up and get some wood. By the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit, don't fill your calendar with activities for you, your spouse, your family, your extended family. You're to honor your parents, your love grandma. But if your schedule is so full that you cannot participate in a reasonable way, what's building the house of God? It's edifying the people of God. It's serving the people of God. It's serving alongside the people of God. It's being on mission with the people of God to reach people that do not know God. That's building the house of God. Go up to the hills, get wood, build the house, cut the wood. What will be the result? God will be glorified. God takes pleasure in that. And God will make up for all the rest. Little Johnny will be okay. If little Johnny is taught that we live our lives captured by the grace of God, Jesus died for our sins and raised to defeat the power of sin and death, to forgive us, to free us, to unchain us from the chains of the world so that we could live in freedom for his glory, investing our life in something that lasts. If he gets that and misses a few piano lessons, he's going to be okay. 
he's going to be more than okay. There's not one of us in the room that knows anything about these people's paneled houses or cares. But the house of God and the worship of God and what happened there, that had, that had significance in the history of redemption. I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you a single drape that my mom bought in our house. But I could tell you that she prayed for me and with me, talked to me about Jesus, lived for Jesus as a model, taught me at a very early age. You get some money, you put it in your little offering envelope, and you take it down to second grade Sunday school. That's God's money. She taught me that. She taught me we don't go to church alone. And I haven't lived up to this. We get our station wagon and we get neighbor kids that don't know Jesus and we bring them. That's what I remember. She's with the Lord now, but that's the enduring. That's what I remember. I remember we drop what we're doing if someone has a need that we can meet. That's the way she lived her life. I don't remember her drapes. I don't remember what sofa we got when. I I don't remember being consumed with the things of our little world. I don't remember that. But the lasting legacy, she invested her life in building the house of God with no regrets, and her kids have no regrets. We may have missed out on some stuff. I didn't want to go to church every Sunday morning, and I may have missed out. Some other kids were going and doing this. I may have missed some opportunities. I didn't miss a thing. I didn't miss a thing. So we can say, we're so busy. Look, these people have no YouTube, no electricity, no ESPN, no Home Depot, no music lessons. They have no four-bedroom homes. They have no Facebook. And yet God says to them, you're busy, busy, busy about yourself in your house. (laughs) Wow. God's freedom for this purpose. Here's the big point. Take this point with you from this scripture. God's people are called to live for God's glory by building God's house. That's what he's saying. God's people are freed by the power of the gospel, brought out of captivity. God's people are freed so that they can do what? What's their purpose? So that God's people can live for God's glory by building God's house, which includes the mission to reach those who don't know him. We're going to talk about the specifics of their repentance next week because they repent. This is why it's revival. They hear and they act and they act fast. The whole book is written in four months. They're all dated, the oracles. It's four months. They repent. They get on with it. It's beautiful. Here's the closing. Go out with this. These are the points of application. Number one, remember the gospel. We have been brought out of captivity and freed for the purposes of God. Jesus died to forgive our selfishness. Listen, Jesus knew that you would be busy about your world. Jesus knew that your concerns would be more important to you than the concerns of others. Jesus knew that I would love myself more than I do my neighbor. Jesus knew that. And that's why he went to the cross to die for that. Don't walk out of here with your head between your tails, man, I'm just really selfish. Yeah, you may be. Well, let's take that to the cross because that's why Jesus died. He died to forgive our sin. Here's the other thing Jesus did. He lived in our place. He obeyed for us. Here's what the disciples said about Jesus. Zeal for the Father's house has consumed him. Jesus was consumed with the Father's glory. When you believe in Jesus, his record is credited to you. 
So God looks down to you today, and he says, what is your position before me? What is your status? What is the nature of our relationship? Every selfish deed you've ever done is forgiven. (laughs) Every time you built your world and not his, forgiven if you've believed in Jesus. Jesus' record, always consumed with the glory of God. You've always lived for my glory in terms of what your status is before me. Accepted, loved, no condemnation. Wow, well, this kind of sounds like condemning words. No, no condemnation, because Jesus obeyed, Jesus forgives, and Jesus has defeated the power of sin uh, in our lives. So, remember the gospel, remember your status before God. Don't run from God where you failed, run to him. Number two, remember the gospel. That sounds like point one. It is. Remember the gospel. Because Jesus not only forgives our sins, get this, he gives us power to change. We're declared righteous, and then the rest of our lives he is sanctifying us, he is conforming us to his image, so our actual lives begin to look more and more like what he's declared us to be. He says, I declare you righteous, I accept you based on Jesus' record, you're connected with Jesus, you're in Jesus, you're united to him, I love you, I adopt you into my family, I welcome you, I gave my son for you because I love you. And you're secure, wonderful. Now, here's what's going to happen the rest of your life. Based on the power of the gospel, I'm going to help you be more and more like my son. I'm going to give you the spirit so the Holy Spirit lives in you to change us and make us like Christ. And we have the word of God, we have the people of God, all those kinds of things. So God will give us the power to live for his purpose with his priorities. We can be changed. It happens here. People in Haggai are going to be changed. God is building his house, and he's calling us to get in on his purposes, which are wonderful. Who doesn't want to invest their life in something that's eternal? something that goes on, something that counts, something that is snatching people out of the grips of hell and bringing them into the grips of the kingdom of God. Who doesn't want to be a part of that rescue mission? Who doesn't want to be a part of building together where people love one another, where people who are diverse have different ideas, that they come together in union around the gospel? Who doesn't want to be a part of something where people are patient and long-suffering with one another in their weaknesses and failures, and people are welcomed, not self-righteously judged when they are different and when they are fallen, but their burdens are being borne by the people of God. Who doesn't want to be in that community? That's building the house of God. It's saying, I'm invested to be a part of that kind of environment that is long-term, that is enduring that's about me investing for the purpose of God and the good of his people and about knowing that people will carry me along when I'm weak and when I'm broken and when I'm falling apart and when I'm sinning and when my life's spinning out of control. There's the people of God helping me. Why? Because the people of God have invested in the people of God and they've got something besides their paneled house to offer me. They've got something besides their kingdom to offer me in my time of trial. I want to be a part of that. And the gospel builds that. Remember the gospel, you were forgiven. Remember the gospel, he changes you. And number three, let me echo God here. He says twice, consider your ways. We'll talk about their specific repentance next week. Here's the assignment between now and next week. Look at your schedule. I'm walking through these exercises in my life right now as well. Look at your schedule. Look at your relationships. Look at your schedule and how you schedule your relationships, which is a weakness for me. Look at your finances. Look at your vocations. Vocation means calling. So look at your callings. Spouse, husband, wife, child, 
student, employee, neighbor, on the PTA, on the HOA, uh, recreation, whatever you do for hobbies. Look at your vocations. Just look at those and say, God, would you revive me so that I see your overarching purpose for the whole planet, for what you're doing to redeem people, and I see my place in your overarching purpose, and I see how each of my roles lines up with what you want to build in my life, and I see how I can invest in building your house. Help me to see where do I need to pull away and where do I need to beef up so that I can be investing in your house today. Not when it's convenient or when I'll get around to it. Today. 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 Where can I cut some wood? Where can I nail some wood? What can we do to respond to you? God's people are called to live for God's glory by building God's house. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.